Dr. Rebecca Brightman is an OBGYN specialist, but also a hormone specialist. And I feel strongly that the roller coaster ride that women experience from puberty to postmenopause really has the most impact on our lives of anything. It controls our behavior, our feeling, our motivation, our moods, our drive, our temperament. And it really is the impetus for so much that happens in a woman's life. So understanding hormones and how to deal with them from an early age on for the rest of our lives is a very important bit of information that women should have and we actually don't have. We don't have it in total. I think if you're a mom or if you're a young preteen to going through all the roller coaster ride of those hormones through postmenopause, this is for you. It's for you to listen to at different points in your life. It's for you to share with women of all ages. So I really think you're going to get a lot out of the brilliant contribution she made to this series. So Dr. Rebecca Brightman is the next podcast from the Doctors series. Welcome, Rebecca. I'm thrilled that uh, you agreed to be a part of this series. I'm interviewing doctors who specialize in women's issues, and it's such a thrill to be able to share information from brilliant, accomplished women doctors who can talk a little bit more, have more time to talk out things that we're either too nervous to ask when we're in the office or not really sure what it is to ask. But before we do that, I would love for you to give us a little background on your history, what it is you do, your motivation, just a, a, some sort of familiar background. Sure. Well, first of all, thank you so much. I am so really honored to be here and to be able to speak to you. And I am absolutely passionate about women's health. I am an OBGYN, really a gynecologist now, in private practice in Manhattan. I have been in practice since 1990, and I trained as an OBGYN and really spent the first 28 years of my practice delivering babies and practicing gynecology. Wow. And as I've aged, I've really cultivated an interest in women's health, obviously their health through midlife and beyond. And I also enjoy taking care of everyone's teenagers. It's kind of fun. It, it strikes a balance. Although I really made it my mission about 10 years ago to become much more knowledgeable about women as they transition through perimenopause and menopause because I felt that there was really a deficiency in terms of the amount of knowledge we have. And I really felt that I was going to make it my mission to try to take care of my patients and hopefully get some you know, knowledge out there and educate women about health care and enable women to speak to their health care providers because, as you and I both know, Many women just don't have the time or the ability to spend time with their physicians, and a lot of physicians are very harried and rushed. And I think conversations need to be started by patients, um, because if patients and women don't advocate for themselves, they may have a quick appointment with their health care provider and never really have the opportunity to have their questions answered. You know, I, I think that there's a couple of sides to that. So we know we have to go and get a checkup and it's important to do, but we just want to get the hell out of there before we hear any bad news. Like, get, let me get out of here in case Absolutely. she says something I don't want to hear. So I think that there's this fear factor. We know we have to do it. Obviously, doing it religiously helps sort of prevent things or lessen the effect of something negative. But my real excitement about having this conversation with you is the hormonal roller coaster that each woman goes through in a lifetime is understated, misunderstood, and actually kept secret for most of her life because 
some of it just doesn't seem appropriate or women may be judged as a little crazy because they're acting different. And so we're very conflicted. But if we start with puberty and what's happening to a woman at that time, I'd love to go through that and your thoughts about a young girl just having that experience or about to have the experience. What do you recommend you tell her, and should she see you right away? Right. Well, these are you know great thoughts, and I will tell you that, I, and I always say this to my patients, hormones affect every organ system of the body, and so much of the psychology and organ systems and bodily changes and dealing body, bodily changes that women deal with as they transition through puberty, they also deal with as they transition through menopause. Right. And I've also told pregnant women over the years that, yes, they think about their bellies, but truly every organ system is impacted by hormones. So with starting with young women, really, and, and a lot of my patients ask, gosh, you know, my daughter got her period, should I have her see you? And my <laughs> initial knee-jerk reaction is absolutely not, because the last thing I want to do is traumatize a young woman. <laughs> now, clearly, if a teenager has an issue that falls in my, you know, domain, of course, I will, I will see them. But you know, with young women as they, you know, enter puberty and the age can be very variable. There are many like components. What? what is it? Any, now? you know, honestly, anywhere from nine to, you know, 13, 14, you know, some women don't get their first period until they're 16. Really? You know, if women are very athletic, have a low BMI, they may menstruate a little bit later. You know, some women who are working out too much or you know, ballet dancers, people who are um, into gymnastics, um, women with eating disorders tend to be a little bit later. So, but, you know, on average, let's say they're 12. You know, prior to, you know, when one looks at the transition through puberty, the last thing that typically happens is getting one's period. You know, young women start with some, you know, pubic hair, usually first, and then a little hair under their arms, which we refer to as axillary hair, and then breast bud development, and then breast development and ultimately they will uh, get their period. Once a young woman gets her period, that's when her growth you know, starts to sort of taper off. So if I had to generalize, many women who are sort of on the trajectory to be taller tend to menstruate a little bit later, but you can't really generalize. So you know, again, the hormones that occur during adolescence will really affect every organ system. The brain, you know, the ovaries as they start to make estrogen also make some testosterone, and testosterone's responsible for libido. So, you know, young women may start to show an interest in, you know, sex, sexual activity, um, and be aware of that. Also, you know, they tend to sweat a little bit more. They may notice, you know, changes in terms of, you know, odors and, you know, perspiration and things like that. And, you know, skin also changes with age as well as you know, pretty much every organ system mm -hmm. does. They may notice a change in body hair, and women continue to develop. And as they menstruate, they undergo cyclical changes with their cycles. Again, everyone's different. Some women don't have regular menstrual cycles, but let's say the average woman might, except for clearly when she's pregnant or nursing, for example. And then starting around, I would say 46, 47 to me is always the magic number with patients. If I had to generalize, many women do start to have menstrual irregularities. It can start in their earlier 40s and everyone's different. You know, you hear women talk about menopause and you think it's a definite, you know, finite moment in time, which it's not. It's really a transitional period. It can last seven years. And again, how hormones affect every organ system of the body, they may notice a change in their libido. They may notice change in hair patterns. Their menstrual cycles may be thrown off. And these are all things they'll want to discuss with their physicians. In addition, there's a huge psychological component for many women. And as I mentioned, and I keep going back to the point that hormones affect every organ system, it's important to realize that there are emotional components. Many women face you know, you talk about the emotional and hormonal roller coaster. This occurs premenstrually as PMS. It can occur with women who are postpartum, and then absolutely during perimenopause. And I've seen so many women in my practice who don't have a prior history of PMS or don't have a prior history of postpartum depression, but all of a sudden they do present in perimenopause thinking something's terribly wrong. Yeah, there's a new anxiety, yeah. new depression, right. and. Sometimes it's really written off by their internists. Um, they yeah. have palpitations, it's written off. And well, 
so many of these things can be explained by hormonal changes. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how when I can take care of a patient and manage things hormonally, how much better they can feel. Yeah, I think the conversation about hormones is very important because it's almost, uh, I've many times broken it down by decade, even half decade, because at each point, there are different things happening in our lives as women, and there are different expectations we have for our lives, and the hormones are going through their cycle. And we are affected emotionally and spiritually, intellectually, in every way. It's not just the physical. It's, it's every part of us. And I often think about, so at puberty, there's this revelation. Something dramatic has happened. And this little girl is not going to be the same. She is no longer that person that she was prior to. Leading up, yes, her body's changing, she's seeing little physical changes, but her, the hormones now are playing a big part of how she sees herself, her self-esteem, how she's being, how boys are re reacting or responding to her, the power of her body, the power of her feminism, um, all of that starts to take priority sometimes over the intellect and over the ability to be smart, to be focused, to accomplish. And it's very difficult and very often girls will allow themselves to be objectified thinking the, the confusion about the power of their bodies and then the, the ability to allow themselves to be objectified by boys and thinking they're going to love them. Right. And our desire to be loved is, is extraordinary. It's very different from boys. To be loved, you know, to have a big diamond ring, that I am loved more than you are. My wedding, look at how I am loved. This guy loves me, and all of that impacts how we behave as women. And that's the beginning of the self-esteem issues and objectification, and that is such a critical time. And by not understanding the power of hormones and our behavior, we're not able to, to get back to square one when we have that first horrific experience with a boy <laughs> or the embarrassment right. or whatever right. it is that we, that's happened. And so I think really identifying each of these stages. So just to sort of dig a little deeper, so now we're out of puberty and sort of adjusting and being attracted to boys. I remember kissing a boy at 11 and not knowing why I was excited, um, but I was terribly excited. And it threw me off a bit. I mean, I was very studious, and I'm sure you were the same oh, too. Big, big time. And so there's that throw mm -hmm. off. And then you are going into your 20s and still developing, still understanding that this body that you've developed and the way you express yourself through clothing and makeup is another part of this it's almost like the hormones are directing you what is happening in that sort of development time when the girl now may be coming to your office and she's becoming sexually active what's happening at this point well it's really interesting and i i you know, much to your point of what you mentioned, and you talk about objectification, I think when I grew up, you could either be, you know, a student, a nerd, or you could really care about your appearance. The two were totally separated. 
And I remember my mother really giving me a very hard time. <laughs> and, you know, girls like you don't go become doctors right. and so on and so forth, make up your mind. And I was really sort of felt I'm going to do this all. And I think like, you know, we were perhaps the pioneers in terms of showing people that we could be accomplished, we could care about the way we looked. And just because we cared about the way we looked and we wanted to exercise and eat well and take care of ourselves doesn't mean yeah. that we didn't have the same drives or interest in, you know, mm -hmm. academic achievements and uh, success with our respective careers. So I think young women embrace, hopefully, and I think it's easier for today's young women because they can do it all. They're encouraged to do mm -hmm. it all. I think times are really different. So that they are faced with the fact that they are sexual beings. And for some young women, I think they have trouble sort of juggling, gosh, you know, can I do this? Can I still be st studious? And I think that for them, there are enough role models where they can actually strike a balance. I think for some adolescents, perhaps they have a more difficult time than others in terms of, you know, I guess it would manifest itself with perhaps insecurity, potentially promiscuity, but I really try to talk to my young patients. I love taking care of adolescents and, and discussing so what, things like what this. what would you say? You know, to respect your body. You know, really respect your body and, you know, to take care of yourself and that people should respect you. And I also think young women are empowered enough today and i also think young men and i'm the mother of two young men i think they're scared to death <laughs> i think that you know they know that they need to be respected respectful of women so um i think it's a little bit easier for women to balance yeah. both things you know femininity their, their changing bodies their interest in you know sex they're embracing their sexuality as well as achieving things mm -hmm. plus i think girls are more aggressive now oh definitely and so maybe you know we may be tipping over the scale a little bit in aggressiveness but it, it'll balance out it, the pendulum will swing yeah, back and no, i've it, thought it about will. it but i i do think um once you become sexually active there's a different responsibility. So obviously you need to go to the gynecologist. You need to do regular visits. Now you have entered that zone. You, you decided to be an adult in, with your body. Right. And, and so then there's the conversation about birth control. Clearly it's the family's responsibility to make sure that the responsibility of a of having a child is an extraordinary one Absolutely. Um, and what does that mean as far as the responsibility in your body so when it comes to birth control or prevention what type of conversation have you had with young girls so it's really interesting. It's amazing how many, some of my young patients come in because they want to be sexually active and they're really open with their moms. And it's really nice. Now granted, I practice on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. These are well-educated <laughs> kids. They're, they have great, you know, relationships with their, you know, their moms or dads who oftentimes bring them in. Sometimes, you know, the moms bring them in because they know the young woman's going to be sexually active. But and they're, these kids are smart. They're really taught from a very early age, as are the boys for that matter, you know? Um, I remember talking about condoms when my children were in elementary school. It was a little bit, <laughs> oh a bit of a renegade in that respect. Um, but, but all kidding aside, um, so they're well aware of contraception. And it's interesting, in my practice, I've seen so many fewer unintended pregnancies. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that women are so concerned about STD prevention and STI prevention that they are making their partners use condoms. And obviously, you know, they worry about undesired pregnancies. So in addition to condoms, many young women who are having sex on a regular basis will want something else. And uh, birth control pills are very common, you know. And the other thing that's really regained popularity, and I spend a tremendous the amount of time speaking to the moms and trying to reassure the moms are IUDs. IUDs have are not the IUDs of the 70s and the, the 60s. Good old copper coil. No, they are totally <laughs> reconfigured. Um, American Academy of Pediatrics, American College of OBGYNs, really um, endorses the use of IUDs really? as That's long. Great. They're they're considered uh, LARCs, long-acting reversible forms of contraception. That's great. Some of these IUDs are good for three to five to even wow. ten years, depending wow. on which one a young girl opts to have. And they're great options for women. And I really try to instill in my patients, if they opt to use birth control pills or IUDs, they must prevent you know, STIs. They have to take a sexual history right. for their partners. 
it's not an easy conversation. Sex is messy. Talking about sex is awkward for all parties involved. So on the um, birth control pills, we're talking about hormones. Yes. We're talking about the complexity of the hormones that we're living with and the effect of hormones on our, on our bodies. So now, if you're a young girl and you're taking birth control, what, just to be clear so everybody understands what that means, so an IUD, you put it in. I remember having the copper coil. That's how old I am. Um, I think it was the first one out of the box. And, um, and but the idea of that was that I didn't. I wasn't putting anything into my body, right. and that there was a chance here of having something that I didn't have to deal with right. on a regular basis. So what happens? What is happening happening chemically? to a female who takes birth control pills? So first of all, just to get back to the IUD and the copper coil, other than perhaps making one's periods a little bit heavier, you know, with the copper IUD, we now use a, a something um, called, it's more of a, a copper T, but um, it's Paragard. It's, well, it's not, it is copper-based <laughs> IUD system. Um, Paragard is one of the brands. Um, it is non-hormonal. For younger women or women of all ages, sometimes their periods are a little bit heavier, but it is non-hormonal. It's good for up to 10 years. And usually the side effects, if there were any perhaps heavier periods, maybe crampier. For women who are really dealing with heavy bleeding and they're really crampy, the hormonal-containing IUDs contain hormones that essentially can affect the uterine lining. So the result is that the uterine lining is not really built up. So when it comes time for a period, some of these women don't get a period at all, which they love, or they just have a very light period. So it's amazing, and yet it's, you know, reverse, it's reversible, and uh, they don't have to remember to take a pill. But to answer your question, for those young women who are on birth control pills, first of all, it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of decision to make. A woman has to talk to her physician. There's certain pills that perhaps may be better if a woman is prone to acne. Um, if a woman tends to have recurrent ovarian cysts, there may be different pills. For the most part, these are low-dose pills compared to the pills of the 60s and 70s, and we have some very, very low-dose pills out now. So it's trial and error. You know, some women notice nothing when they're on the pill. Other women notice more hormonal neutrality, if you will, uh, ovulations inhibited, so the highs and lows that many women experience during the course of a ovulatory menstrual cycle, they no longer experience. And there are other women who really feel anxious and depressed on the pill. So when I'm starting somebody on the pill for the first time, I really go through all of this with them. I like them to touch base with me. I tell them it's not one size fits all. And there is definitely some trial and error involved. Really? But there are many women who are on the pill for years and years. Perhaps they'll take a break for pregnancies. Many women as they age are on birth control pills independent of wanting contraception. They like regulating their cycles. Um, some women like having what we call an extended cycle where they don't bleed at all. And um, it's great for women with heavy periods or crampy periods. So I asked my staff, which is mostly women, <laughs> to send me their questions okay. that they should have, would have liked to have asked. And since we're on this topic, um, I've been on birth control for 30 years. Is this really bad for my body? I'm 47 years old. So absolutely not. Absolutely not. And I think that there's so many myths out there. And it upsets me to no end because, especially when I meet new patients, I feel that I can spend half of an office session debunking some of the myths. We now know, barring any underlying medical problems, women can safely say on, say on birth control pills until the age of menopause. Average age of menopause in this country is about 51 and a half. The interesting thing for someone in their 40s who has been told or thinks they need to go off the pill, it's the perfect time to stay on the pill because this is a time when women are typically perimenopausal. They have these highs and, and lows. Their estrogens, their progesterones are higher than ever before, lower than ever before, and they be can become much more hormonally sensitive. So being on the pill sort of provides a hormonal neutrality, if you will. So I encourage you to stay on it. I really do. So would you liken birth control to hormone replacement therapy, or is it in the same world? Of so 
That's a great question. So with hormone replacement therapy, you know, typically the term refers to giving women hormones after they've had their final period. And menopause is, by definition, occurs when a woman has gone a full year without having had a period. Uh, during perimenopause, cycles can become very irregular. And during those time periods, there can be hormonal lows where a woman really has trouble sleeping, night sweats, hot flashes, the things we typically attribute mm -hmm. to menopause. So in essence, while it's not typically hormone replacement, it's giving you, as I said before, giving a woman hormonal neutrality so she doesn't have to experience the highs and lows. Hormone replacements typically, with hormone replacement, we use lower doses, which may not be sufficient enough to suppress ovulation, so someone might bleed around that. So it's lower than? Hormone replacement is yeah. lower than oral contraception. Um, so another question that I was asked to. I love these questions. <laughs> They're great I questions. love them. <laughs> um, so if you're in your late 30s, early 40s, and you're starting to feel like you're overheated, or is it, can, can perimenopause start that early? Is, has it been, it, it Oh, sure, yes. sure. And the interesting thing is it doesn't mean a woman's less fertile, so they have right. to, they can't think, oh, I'm having hot flashes, I'm not gonna get pregnant, right. because. She, she could very absolutely. well. Absolutely, so, you know, in terms of treating women, one always has to keep contraception in mind, yeah. but essentially our thermostat starts to break down as, it's the best way to describe right. it. And as women get into their 40s, and for some women it can be their later 30s, everyone is different. You know, some women don't become symptomatic until their late 50s, yeah. uh, and I've certainly seen that. But it is not unusual to have some night sweats, some difficulty sleeping, and especially before one's period where hormone levels do drop down, some people mm. do tend to have yeah. symptoms. I, I want to emphasize the fact that that does not mean you can't get pregnant. My grandmother had my mother when she was 55. Wow. And my aunt had her daughter, my cousin, when she was 55. A fertile so family. So when 55 <laughs> came, I was like, lockdown, not gonna happen. So yes, I, I think it's really important to, to understand that they're not necessarily, it's not the end of everything. Absolutely Everybody, not, no. And it, it is different for everyone. One of the, the things that, um, before we get into perimenopause and menopause, which is a big part of sure. what we should talk about, I am around a lot of young women who are very successful and becoming powerhouses and really significant players in the business world. and. And they just haven't met their soulmate. I mean, I was 65 when I met my soulmate. So it, we all have a different schedule. And to think, what are they gonna do? Of course, at 30, they're having panic attacks because the, according to the schedule of life, they should be married and have a kid, and we know that that's not true. And so many, many, as you know, are thinking about freezing eggs. What's, what's involved with that? What's the hormonal therapy and the work that has to be done with that? Can you share uh, sure. some information? Absolutely. Because that, this, and menopause are two big, 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 big topics. Absolutely. So let's Absolutely. give this some time. I, I will tell you, first of all, my heart goes out. I think I would be, I had my kids in my mid to late 30s. I will tell you that I think in my late 20s and early 30s, if I knew women were freezing eggs, I would have been so anxious. I, I really, that would not have been a good thing for me. Uh, I think it's tough for young women these days, although, on the other hand, they really have great options. So my approach has always been, you have to look at the, a woman's social history. Clearly, if they're in a committed relationship and they're in their early 30s and they're contemplating having a family in the near future, I wouldn't run ahead and go ahead and say, freeze your eggs. But one thing I really have tried to make an effort to do with my patients who are in their early 30s is asking what their plans are in terms of having children. Do they want to have children someday? Um, some women don't, and that's absolutely fine. But for those who do, I think it's really important for them not to be pressured into finding somebody who may not be the right, right. life partner just because they want to have kids. And the good news is they can explore the option of egg freezing so that they don't feel pressured. And the interesting thing, and I always tell my patients this, and I've really found this in my practice, it's the best insurance policy out there. I have yet to see 
any of my patients freeze their eggs and actually use them. They've all ended up meeting somebody and getting pregnant. You know, uh, the technology is still somewhat new. So at some point, yes, some of these frozen eggs may be used, but it's a really nice option mm -hmm. for women to have. And I think as women are more independent and they less, I mean, we have to admit that the the role of the male-female relationship was one will be in the workplace and pay for everything and support everyone and then the other will raise the children and that role has been turned upside down and and mushed around and so now there are many women who are the breadwinners and Absolutely. many women who are um, playing a big role in the in the male perceived concept of sure. what that relationship is about and one of the big things I hear is I always thought this guy, the guy I marry or the guy I'm with was going to take care of me, but I realize now that I'm the breadwinner, but I want to have children and I can't do it now. And so the egg freezing is, is a big conversation and it's one that everybody is talking about. One of the questions is at what age is you know, the ultimate best age to freeze eggs, and is there an end date to that? So that's a great question. The truth is it really has to be individualized. Clearly, the younger the eggs are, the better, but I certainly, and I've had friends ask me about their daughters in their later late 20s, and I'm like, no, no, no. You know, I think realistically, early 30s, the interesting thing is there are some screening blood tests that can be done. They're not perfect. The reproductive endocrinologists who do you know, infertility exclusively really can really speak to that. But there are tests that can give us a sense as to ovarian reserve. And if a woman has a question, you know, should they, is this something they should consider, then it's worthwhile doing these screening tests, um, which may also be, you know, combined with an ultrasound, I think optimally done by someone who does infertility medicine to determine, you know, is now the right time? Is this something that a woman may have some time to think about? Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing is there's a difference between freezing an egg versus freezing an embryo. You know, for that woman who may be in a mm -hmm. committed relationship but doesn't want a child now, Many women go ahead and do IVF where they have embryos, you know, fertilized eggs, which then can be frozen and then reimplanted at a later date. And mm -hmm. today it is not unusual for women to actually, the part of the IVF process includes actually freezing those embryos, testing those embryos for genetics or, you know, right. other things, and then reimplanting them once they've when been pre-screened, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, so it, again, everyone is, is different. There's no perfect time, but clearly the younger one is, the better. The other question is when the decision is made to freeze eggs or do any of this process, there's hormones involved. Again, whether it's birth control that we're adding or hormone replacement, how complicated is this hormone Procedure. So essentially what happens is women are given medication to induce multiple, we say follicles, recruit several eggs. During the course of a normal cycle, there is typically one egg released from what we call a follicle, and the ovary follicles are like little cysts. So you can imagine women are given medication, you know, via injection to stimulate their ovaries to make lots of eggs. So the ovaries get very big and women can have some discomfort. When the eggs are retrieved, they feel as though they've had you know, multiple cysts rupture and they can have pelvic pain. And the ovaries can become very large, it can become painful. There's something called hyperstimulation syndrome, which can be associated with pain and some other physiologic changes also. Ultimately, the good news is ovaries are pretty resilient, they can handle it, but it, it, you're, one does put one's body through mm -hmm. a lot, and that's a real roller coaster. Yeah. So yes, we are continuing the roller coaster ride. So I think another little segment to, to look, big segment to look at is every time a woman is pregnant and her body is going through yet more hormonal changes and the, the pregnant, the nine months and then giving birth. So it's what is she doing? What's happening to her body pre-pregnancy and then post-pregnancy? So tell us a little bit about 
sort of the typical scenario of childbirth, what behavior you find the, the most beneficial to women who are going through pregnancy from a health wellness sure, perspective sure. to post-pregnancy uh, and how they handle that. Because yeah. that's a big hormonal drive. Oh, absolutely. And you know, my, my philosophy has always been women should maintain a healthy lifestyle. You know, eating healthfully, working out, and I really feel, and I, this was, this is what I did, you know, for myself and my pregnancies. If you exercise and have a healthy lifestyle, you can really continue that through your pregnancy. There are, yes, of course, there are a couple of modifications when mm -hmm. it's to make, you know, alcohol, you know, watch your caffeine, but I am not, I, I never approached pregnancy as a disease state per mm -hmm. se, mm -hmm. you know, so I think being one's, you know, physical best, you know, when one conceives is ideal. And then, of course, when women get pregnant, everyone's different. You know, some people feel terrible during the first trimester with morning sickness. Um, some people don't. So that's very variable. You know, clearly you have to worry about hydration and everything else. Um, what is morning sickness? So, Why is that happening? Well, there are changes in hormones. There's a hormone called HCG, which is made once in egg implants in the uterus. And for some women, some women have higher levels. Some women are just much more sensitive. It's such an individual thing. Um, I know it scared me to pieces before I had my kids, and I was fortunate, but some people really do get sick. It's the rare woman who really needs IV hydration and everything else, but again, everybody mm -hmm. is different. And But the body does change, not so much during the first trimester. You know, women have a little distension, um, they may feel like they're showing, but really it's gastrointestinal distension. Um, and then, you know, there's an increase, obviously, in the size of the uterus. Women's breasts grow. Um, there's an increase in circulating blood volume. There's fluid retention, and all of this feeds into weight gain. Women have to realize that it's normal to gain weight during pregnancy. Ideally, we say to, if someone who starts pregnancy with a normal BMI, we want to see a weight gain of about 25 to 35 pounds. That's very different if someone has either too low a BMI or too mm -hmm. high a BMI. But if they're eating healthfully, we anticipate they're going to gain this amount of weight. And the interesting thing is they will lose it with minimal effort if they go back to assuming a healthy lifestyle and exercise. Um, so I think it's important for women to realize that. And postpartum, it's not like we walk out of the hospital and we're back wearing our you know, right. skinny jeans. It just doesn't work that way. And for some women, some women end up gaining more and some women gain and retain much more fluid. So people talk about you know, the fourth trimester you know, after they deliver. And um, it's a matter of time. It's a matter of being able to exercise. Everybody's different. You know, some women don't have the ability to have someone watch their child so they can go to the gym. It's the lucky person. It's the, you know, we hear about the celebrities, people who are in the news and how great they look immediately after delivering, but they have a whole team of people mm -hmm. helping them and making great food for them and they're getting rest. You know, when women are newly postpartum, they're tired, they're emotional, mm -hmm. the, the hormones, you know, again, roller coaster. Right. Some women are depressed. So it's harder for some women to bounce back Let, than others. Yeah, let's talk about that. I think um, I, interviewed a lot of women for um, a project I was working on and there were certain reoccurring issues that would be when I would say what what have been the challenges for you and a very common one was after giving birth they were so depressed and felt almost incapacitated and obviously you know, serotonin levels are down and every and like you said, the best thing you can do is to eat healthy, to try to work out. And even if there isn't a gym or there isn't a place you can go, even if you just lie on the floor and do chin ups or some something um, and you're exhausted because you haven't slept, so you think lie on the floor, you'll fall asleep. But even just making that effort if it's two seconds worth. Absolutely. Part of it is psychological that you're you're controlling your destiny and not letting something else control. And I think that that's such a big part of it. But I, I don't think there's enough conversation about the drop, the emotional roller coaster of the hormones going up and down and dropping and, and how is that, how do you lift up out of that it's a it's an overwhelming weight it is. so what have been some of the 
situations you've seen? So, uh, you know, I, I will tell you something. One thing that's huge, and we use the word, you know, sleep hygiene. Sleep is really, really important, and it, and it's tough. You know, many women who opt to breastfeed or who don't have an extra set of hands, single moms, for example, are up every couple of mm. hours mm. feeding their baby and changing their baby, and it's exhausting. And we know that sleep deprivation plays a huge role with yeah. respect to mood, anxiety, and depression. And over the years, I've had patients who are very depressed and very tearful, and I've said to them, you, ha you have to have sleep someone is, help you. Yeah. Sleep is essential. And even if it means introducing a bottle at night or getting somebody to help you, and it's unbelievable how much better people feel. But again, not everyone has that ability. Mm -hmm. You know, to have somebody to be able to help you so that you can sleep, and then you feel better during the day, that's the mm -hmm. toughest thing. It really softens the hormonal blows. And asking blows. for help, I think, yes. is a big part of yes. it. So in, you know, I'm, my whole life is about healthy lifestyle, what to do, and there are the three pillars of a healthy lifestyle are sleep, diet, and exercise. And sleep is 50% of Absolutely. that pie. I agree. It is I not agree. an equal part. It is 50%. So when the deprivation mm -hmm. is there, and there's this human being that needs you, and when they cry or when they're hungry or when they're just not sorted out, the the effect that can have emotionally on any spirit is, is, is overwhelming. And I think asking for help is people overthink that that's not, they're not going to get help. But I do think if you ask enough people for help, they will give it to you, and, and you have to find a way to, to make that work. And sometimes it's a very lonely feeling if you're a single mom. And, very isolating. And, and it's isolating. And not all, it's not necessarily family that will be there for you, and, and you do have to reach out. And I, I, I think it's up to friends to say, can I help you? Can I come over? I'll spend the night you know, sure, do something sure. like that where we can support, especially during that, the first, oh my God. It's, it's hard. Like, <laughs> and there's also a lot of guilt. I know for myself, I went back to work soon after I had my kids and I felt so guilty going back. I felt guilty having people help me. I felt guilty that right. I wasn't getting up at night because I was on call and I might need to go rush right. into surgery or deliver someone else's baby. And I will tell you, my kids are no worse for the wear. Mm -hmm. They actually don't remember no. that. I feel very connected and bonded to my children, but it's the overwhelming guilt. And I wish somebody had talked some sense into yeah. me because yes. it's the guilt and it's okay to ask for help. Yeah, and, and the guilt then, you know, when you go back to work, you're guilty about leaving your kids, and then you're guilty at work because you have to leave early, or you need to, you're, something happened and you have to run home. And so there's a tremendous amount of guilt, still not sorted out. We haven't worked out how that'll be. And as the owner and the boss, I am uh, constantly trying to figure out, well, how, do how do I do this? How do, I don't know what. Um, to do, but I just don't want women lying to me and feeling bad. Um, if you have to leave, you have to tell the truth. Absolutely. You have to be honest. Absolutely. Because in the end, it's going to take you down. It's going to take them down to, to feeling so horrible about it, making decisions that aren't rational. So I think the guilt is so big in this and it also is part of that postpartum there's guilt involved there's there's just bad self-image you know oh, oh my god look what happened to my body look but i think being proactive while you're pregnant and thinking about working out eating properly getting as much sleep, preparing as you do for the room or whatever else you're doing, preparing you and maintaining that. I work out at Physique 57 and I have seen so many women get pregnant, work out straight through the pregnancy, have babies, come back looking like they did before they got pregnant. And when you look at them from the back, you can't mm -hmm. tell. And these are girls that eat 
they, they work out, they're active, they're not starving themselves. And they come back and I think, oh my God, of course I'm wondering how they have their leg up in the air with this big belly on the bar, but God bless them, they do. So I think that it, there's a mental connection you have to make with, if I want to feel good after this is over, I think I'm going to have to put in some time ahead. I agree. I agree completely. I, I, you know, I, I worked out when I was pregnant. I remember my husband coming and watching me and yelling at me that I was going to starve my children, and my children were so embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to tell you how big they were. They were absolutely fine. And I, but it does help people bounce mm -hmm. back. And you mentioned bar, which is what I do. And the women who are pregnant and the women who are significantly younger than I am who are doing bar, I'm envious. I wish I did it when I was their mm -hmm. age because it is, it is amazing. really the, um, amazing, amazing, amazing. The stretching for flexibility. Yeah. And of course, yeah. women modify when they're pregnant. Yeah. But I really take my hat off yeah. to them. No, I, I love it. And I'm, I'm just, I just love watching them. And I think this is, this is really understanding that prepping is, is all is. about what the end result will be. You know, and the other, the other thing, not everyone has the ability to take these amazing classes, but the good news is there are streamable Live classes, stream. which yeah. is amazing. I know the studio I go yeah. to now has yep. online streaming services, which I love. You can travel, you yep. can do them, but for those women who can't get out, it's but they can sneak amazing. half an hour, 45 minutes, yep. 15 minutes, they can do something. Yep. I know Physique 57 has 15-minute ones there, and they're so used to working with pregnant women that they even have things for women who are pregnant so post-baby and really getting back in shape. And, and then you feel good about yourself, and everything changes in the way you behave. And the body is so resilient. I know for myself, and I know this because this is what I did, but with my own kids, I remember being on an escalator at a department store when I was relatively recently postpartum, and I had looked at a mannequin, and I thought, that's not fair. Women don't look like this. You know, I wanted to get rid of all of my belts. I thought I'd never have a waist again. And women do bounce back. Yeah. We are really, as women, incredibly resilient. Yeah. We really are, and yeah. it's important to know that. Yeah, it's so true. So much more than men, actually. We can really, we have endurance, we have an ability, and if you can take a bar class, there's no man that can do bar. I tried to bring my No, 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 and they're so embarrassed. They think that they're, once they do a little weight thing, I got this down, and then they can't. And, and bar is a testament to the endurance that women have and the physical strength a woman's body has in a much different way, which is why childbirth is something women do and not men. I agree. <laughs> so, so now there are women who have two or three children. They are dealing with the workplace and having children. And hopefully the more honest and the more open everyone is about this is a real thing that's happening. I found that if people are honest, I can find a way somehow maybe during this period of time you can work from home and we can figure out how to do this. And if someone is good, you, you figure out some way, somehow, to, to make it work. So honesty about what you're going through and not feeling guilty and not feeling shamed because you're having to take more time. Yes, you have to produce, but you can manage your time in another way. So that's a big conversation still to be and I, had. I think things are much kinder and gentler, gentler in the workplace. Mm -hmm. I know, you know, when I had my kids, it, it was business as usual. You know, the pregnancy was sort of an aside and yeah. one wouldn't dare mention, oh, I'm pregnant or I'm swollen or I can't yeah. walk. I mean, that just no. was not an option, um, especially being a physician. I wish I could have worked remotely, but you know, my arms weren't no, long can't. enough. <laughs> no. And there are positions everywhere where that right. can happen, and right. then you find another way to, to do it. Um, so we're going to start talking about 40s and, and going into the 40s. So one of the things when I break down the decades, I think the 30s are you're a mother, you're becoming the adult you're meant to be, You've gone through the big transition from 29 to 30 of all of the chaos in my, I'm not married, I don't have kids, my life is this. Some, some big event happens that says, 
how I go through this is how I'm going to be as an adult. We go through that. I divorced at 29 and I had $98 to my name and I didn't know what I was going to do. But there are many stories, various stories of what happens to, to women at that time. And that builds, that, that sets the future for how you're going to deal with everything as an adult. So 30s are a period of time where you're establishing yourself as an adult. You're developing experience as an adult, as a mother, as a, a business person. And then 40 comes, and 40 is fantastic in so many ways because now you know what the hell you're doing. You know how to be a mother. You've got that down. Maybe it's not perfect every day, but you know how to, you know how to finesse <laughs> it, right? And you know who you are in the workplace. You know your value, you can negotiate your value, you can create the persona at another level that could be executive, it could be quite whatever the dream is. And at 40, you're seeing lines on your face, you're seeing maybe some gray hair has come in, you're seeing body changes, even when you work out, there's still things that are going on. You're seeing you can't eat the same foods you mm -hmm. used to eat, you get a different reaction, things are different. But there's an empowered sort of entity making big decisions. So now we're slowly going into this power, 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 and something starts to happen. Yes, the lines are there. Maybe you're looking more tired because you haven't been sleeping right. You're gaining a little weight, and I've been working and working, and I can't get this weight off. Why is this happening to me? And oh, I'm so uncomfortable in my clothes and I'm feeling like hot and uncomfortable and I'm pissed off and irritated at everybody and I want to kill my coworker because he's <laughs> driving me nuts and, every, and my kids are making me crazy and everything is sort of annoying but you're in this power time at the same time. The complexity of that is just overwhelming. And so here's where the hormones are giving you a roller coaster bash ride. And like Julia said in the interview before, she, she likens puberty and menopause like volcanoes and the in-between as earthquakes. Well, I, that's puberty. a great, and I love that. That's perfect. great. That's, that is I perfect. I said I'm going to use that forever. I like that. It's, I like that. So now we're coming into, we've had our earthquakes. Right. We're coming into a volcano. What is going on, and what, what are the visits that you're having? Sure, What are sure. they about? Well, first of all, I really... I, in my practice, liken puberty to menopause, the menopause transition. Exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, we've talked already, we've spoken already about puberty, but with menopause, you know, when women stop to menstruate, you know, stop menstruating, they feel that it's a loss of sexuality, a loss of beauty, a loss of empowerment, and I try to spend so much time, you know, discussing with women, that's, that's just not the case. Right. You know, the good news is you don't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore. Many women become, if they have kids, are empty nesters. They have a little more time for themselves. Mm -hmm. They have a little more time to further their careers, change careers, explore what they're doing. So I look at it as a very exciting time. Mm. I really try to emphasize with my patients, it's not a loss of beauty. I think, you know, women, we talk about women feel like they're sexual objects, and even women who don't even feel so objectified do feel that it's taken them years to get a sense that they are women and to embrace their womanhood, and all of a sudden they're being robbed of it. So I feel that it's very important for people like you, and hopefully me to a little extent, to um, sort of dispel those myths and let women know that they can be powerful, they mm -hmm. are sexual beings, they can be you know, beautiful. Yes, it may take a little more work and there's certain things we have to do if, to maintain certain things and if one is exercised during one's life, if it's part of their lifestyle and if they think if they've eaten healthfully, some women do need to make dietary changes because our bodies do change, but 
to be able to continue that, I think women will continue to make the transition that much more easily and to feel well mm -hmm. as they age. So I think every woman, even if they exercise, even if they're eating healthy, even if they're sleeping more than most, will experience a change. They just will. Oh, and absolutely. it's sort of the rite of passage. In order to gain the next really great part of your life, and nobody believes me, but I am persistent here, in order to get that, you have to shed what you were. And so 50 represents a reinvention. It's a time where the kids are gone, it's time for you. You don't give a crap about what anybody thinks or says, like don't bother me with your bull. <laughs> it's like none of that, right. out of here, Absolutely. step away. Uh -huh. And so now, if you're reinventing yourself, it's a great time to say, I'm gonna try a workout. Maybe I've never worked out before, or a new workout. I'm gonna start thinking about the food I eat in a different way. I'm gonna start looking at the ritual of sleep with respect from the minute I wake up, not when I put my head on the pillow. I'm gonna make my bedroom special. I'm gonna do all these things. And it all should be self-love. First, it's impossible to think about other people anymore. And the way it works is they left so you can think about you. And whoever the man is in your life, if it's still your husband, <laughs> he's gotta just step aside and get out of the way because it's gotta be you. You've gotta, whether it's self-massage, going for a massage, getting your nails done, taking care of yourself, not jumping to plastic surgery first, and, and I'm not against anything, but without trying this self-love first, you're not doing yourself justice. And taking the time to do all of that, giving yourself the opportunity for reinvention, thinking of your purpose, having a purpose, Understanding what your purpose is in this lifetime will make the next part of your life magical. And I think the horrible feeling you feel and all of that is just saying, congratulations, now shed this, move forward, don't eat spicy food, stay away from alcohol, which you should do anyway, don't do any of the bad things. Try to stay away from caffeine. Really look for things that are gonna relax and nourish you and be indulgent for yourself. And be clear-headed and focused so that your reinvention is one that excites you and gives you an opportunity to have a wonderful life that's all about you. And if you love yourself, your husband will fall in love with you again. Or if he no longer is the right person, guess what? I found my soulmate at 65. So Great. how's that? So you and I get that. And, and the more people that can tell that story, the more we will do for a generation of women who have so much to contribute at this wonderful time. So when people come in to see you who are experiencing the ravages of sure. menopause, what is the typical conversation? What do they lay at your feet first and foremost? Um, it's really what's happening to me. The interesting thing is, no matter how much we've discussed this, and I think we're on the same page in terms of what women go through, so many women come in and they think they're the only ones because I, don't, I still don't think we're talking about this. I, I could speak about menopause for hours. Women don't realize that it really, the hormones do affect every organ mm -hmm. system. So they may have heart palpitations. They may notice a change in body fat distribution, a change in metabolism, a change in sleep patterns. Yeah. And they think, what is, what's happening? Is this the beginning of the end? What am I doing? And the truth is, 
in terms of their bodies, their careers, their mindset. It's never too late to hmm. to make a change, you know. And the other thing is to embrace some of these changes. We don't want to look like our 20-year-old selves. No. I don't think that's normal. I don't think that's healthy. I don't think that would go over too well in the workplace, you know, for professional women. But I think the reassurance and the, for me, explaining why what's happening is happening, and then also taking that opportunity for me to discuss with the women I take care of, you know, now would be a good time to take a look at your routine. You know, what are you eating? You know, talk about alcohol intake. What is acceptable? What is okay? What's really not okay? And giving women sort of the platform to talk about things. Um, unfortunately, a lot of women don't. A lot of t women don't have that time to spend with physicians, and I think then they should know that they can speak to one another to share their experiences yeah. because they're not alone when they go through this. And what about bioidenticals or HRT? What what are, do you recommend? So, this? do you it's, again? It's individual. Individualized. I am a big fan of hormone replacement on so many I am levels. I'm so happy. Huge you said fan that because that's huge a fan. And what really breaks my heart actually is the fact that there's so much misinformation out there. There's so many healthcare providers who are misinformed. They take the WHI, which was, you know, really did a huge disservice to women, the message that came from the WHI 2002, and they've stuck into this, you know, negative, feel these negative reactions and the negative publicity and have run with it, and they will not re-explore and really get up-to-date data, and so many women are helped. We're living longer. We can be our best selves. Again, it has to be individualized. Not everyone is a candidate for hormone replacement. When looking at hormone replacement, I really like the FDA-approved types of hormone replacement. There are synthetic hormones. There are bioidentical FDA-approved hormones, which is tends to be what I go to yeah. with my patients. But there are other options for women. And again, women have different needs. There are certain synthetics that may be a better fit for yeah. a woman. So it's truly trial and error. Um, but I'm a big fan. Again, it's a big discussion that a lot of healthcare providers don't want to have. Very controversial. And I've spoken to so many doctors, women doctors, and asked them about um, hormone replacement in all its forms. And I say, would you recommend this? Would you recommend that? No, no, no. And I said, wait a minute. Let me ask you a question. Are you on hormone replacement? Yes. Are you on hormone? Yes. So they're all on it, but I guess because of some of the controversy, they are hesitant to offer it to patients. Now, I, I agree with you, Every, everyone is completely different, but to, to have a blanket statement that it's not good for everyone is really rough. It's really, it really it's is. unkind to not give an opportunity to women who can really use it and will benefit from it. There are women who literally are going through a psychological break during this period. And it's a lot of it is the hormone right. factor and sort of a complicated series of things that might have to do with health or other medication they're taking, a number of things. And not having some control over that can really end up in a, in a very bad way for women. Yeah. I think women really need to seek out healthcare providers who are proficient when it comes to managing women with hormone replacement because there's so many doctors who just don't have, don't have that fund of knowledge and it's really a shame because it does such a disservice mm. to women. And yes, perhaps not everyone should be on hormone replacement, but there are so many, many benefits of being on it that you know, I think doctors need to be open-minded. I think women should be open-minded and have that conversation. Yeah. Yes, menopause is a natural transition. So too is puberty. Do we treat a natural transition? No, but we're living longer. And I think in much along the lines of what we talked about, being our best selves, I think that will even be mm. enhanced with yeah. hormone replacement. And, and you have to think that 50, just as a number, um, 50, I'm 74. When I was 50, I mean, I was a whole other person. I went through my discovery of how I was going to reinvent myself. I did a huge change in every part of my life. And I think the last 
you know, 24 years have been amazing. I probably more productive in many ways than the first part of my life. And I think I'm feeling like I'm going into an even more productive time of my life. So women have to understand that there's a big road ahead if they want it. If they want a long, healthy life in their minds, you can sort of get in that direction if you are aspiring for that and having goals. And having that kind of a goal is very productive for women. So it's so great that you are such a great proponent for empowering women and giving them an opportunity to realize their potential and that you've now moved to this specialty is so wonderful. Thank and I you. hope we can maybe do a panel in the future and and talk more about this with an audience. That would be great. There's so much to discuss. I would love to. Yeah. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you. This is so great.